This is the word of the Lord. So my son is three years old, as you guys already know. Most of you probably already know. And for those of you who've had children, three-year-old in your life means you have one crazy busy life. Um, I don't have to tell all of you guys with parents. You guys already know this. But for everybody else, you know, this is crazy busy. For those of you who have multiple children and one of them is three, you guys are my heroes. I don't know how you do it. You guys are just so much better at life than I am. Um, literally, having a three-year-old means my time is taken up with, um, or his time is taken up with destruction. Um, sheer attention that he takes, like, is required of dealing with him is unbelievable from having to be like chasing him down when he goes to use the bathroom because aim is not in his priority of things to learn right now. Um, whether it's uh, stepping on toys and like literally hurting your, like your feet constantly in pain, worrying about what he's going to eat, worrying about whether or not he's going to run out to the street for the millionth time, um, constantly worrying about whether he's going to fall again. Uh, literally, like, your life with a three-year-old is, is just is a constant mixture of, like, busyness mixed with f- cleaning things, mixed with feeding things, and like, hoping and praying he sleeps for a really long time. It's crazy. It's, this, is just, this, is just, this is what it's like to have a three-year-old. But every once in a while, in the midst of this, he gets these incredible glimpses. You know, when he kind of, when I show up and I see him from a distance, and he sees me and he goes, Appa! And he runs into my arms and jumps up. And I'm like, okay, this is nice. Or there's other instances when, you know, you're trying to take a nap and you're kind of laying down trying to take a nap together and he's kind of squirming around, you're like frustrated with him, but then he just turns and puts his arm around you and goes to sleep. You're like, oh, that's very nice. Or there's other instances when you are sleeping and he wakes up and you wake up and you just kind of look at each other and you're both awake and he smiles and closes his eyes again. You're like, yep, that's really, really nice. You see, you get these glimpses in the midst of your busyness, in, in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the everyday mundane, because in the midst of all that other stuff, you sometimes forget how beautiful it is. You know, when I am, you know, cleaning pee out of the bathroom for the 50th time, you know, or when I'm constantly throwing away all the food that he won't eat and it's on the floor, I miss it. Or when I'm constantly tired of him throwing toys around, I miss it. But those glimpses let you stop and see, wow man, this kid is beautiful. Makes you stop and think and be like, how blessed am I that I have him in my life? How beautiful is he? What, how ridiculous is this honor, this joy that I have? And that's what I feel happens a little bit in this passage that you just heard. In the midst of life, all of a sudden, uh, uh, coming to this crazy life, the disciples of having been thronged by people, surrounded by people, all of a sudden they get a glimpse of Jesus. His beauty, his radiance. And before we go any further into our sermon, don't we often need that too? I mean, often we go through life and we just kind of work so hard at our job and have, with, if you have a three-year-old, with your three-year-old or whatever, if you have a pet, whatever, I'm not, I'm not saying it's the same, I'm just saying. We go through our lives with all this busyness all the time. Just to survive, just to make, make the ends meet, just to, you know, just to do all the work that maybe God's calling you to do. Maybe you need to see Jesus, his radiance, his beauty, his glory, 
Maybe you need to sit and just be overwhelmed with the incredible majesty of how big he is. Maybe you just need to look and see how beautiful he is. But maybe you just need to be, once again, come face to face for the first time, maybe, how loving he is. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but I think most of us can stop and say, yes, we're really busy consumed with the normal mundane activities of life, whether it's important or it's not. We're overwhelmed with work and with school and with family, with friends, with kids, with bills and with whatever. And maybe I'm hoping right now, just for this moment, as we study the transfiguration, may we stop and just stop everything, the noise and everything else going on, and stop and see, this is Jesus. Let's see who he is. Maybe for you, it's for the first time. You don't know who Jesus is. I would love for you to see who he really is. Not what maybe you've heard about him, but who what the scripture says he is. Maybe for you, you just need to look again and say, man, I need to be reminded of his glory. Maybe your life is hard right now and you're suffering and you need to be reminded that Jesus wins, that he's powerful. Maybe right now, you're struggling with just seeing the worth and beauty and joy in life. And you need to be reminded again that he is beautiful. And he brings such joy. This passage today is a famous passage. It's an occurrence that accomplish something similar to what happened with me and Josiah, but it's so, but it means so much more. I want to set the stage a little bit for this passage. In chapter 8, if you guys want to turn your Bibles there, in chapter 8, starting in verse 27, Jesus asks his disciples, he says, hey, guys, who do people say that I am? Mind you, guys, we've been through the book of Mark, so we've seen all this stuff that's occurred. We've seen him feed the 5,000 and proclaim to the people that I am the right king. You're a sheep without a shepherd. You need a king. You know, we've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him heal a Syrophoenician woman's children. We've seen him heal the bleeding woman. We've seen him inaugurate the kingdom with his baptism. We've seen him announce over and over again his kingship. We know who he is. We've seen him going again. But now he's looking at his disciples and he's saying, hey guys, who do people say that I am? And so you hear their answers. They're like, oh, you're John the Baptist or you're um, Elijah or another prophet. These are answers that they're just kind of saying, I love it because that's how people typically, like Jesus asked them the easy way. Who do other people say that I am? Because typically that's how I would have answered. If Jesus would be like, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I would have been like, well, other people say this. Kind of gauge his reaction. Is that right? No? Okay. Well, no, I don't say that. That's what other people say. You know? <laughs> Never mind. But Peter is bold. Peter says, Jesus asks, who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up, and he says the right answer. He says, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the promised one. You're the one we've been waiting for. But right after Peter makes this bold proclamation, this incredible <coughs> proclamation, Jesus talks about how this one, this son of man, will suffer many things. Now Jesus is referring to Isaiah about the suffering servant, and he's also referring to Daniel and Zechariah about how the suffering one dies. Yet it was still incomprehensible to the Jews and to his disciples. <coughs> when they were looking at the Messiah, they weren't looking at the suffering servant in Isaiah. When they were looking for a Messiah, they weren't looking for the suffering one in Daniel and Zechariah. <clears throat> when they were looking for a Messiah, they were looking for a king like David and Solomon. And so the disciples were looking at him and like, what? No, that can't be. 
Peter, once again, being the bold, crazy um, one, he actually takes Jesus aside. He's like, oh, Jesus, you didn't mean to say that, did you? Could you imagine the audacity of Peter to say that? To be like, whoa, whoa, Jesus, now that we're away from all the disciples, you kind of messed up, right? You didn't mean to say that, right? And Jesus looks at Peter and is like, get away from me, Satan. I mean, what a, one, how do you call Peter Satan? Because he's the guy that you said he's going to build a church on. But here's Peter who, one, how do you say Jesus, how do you rebuke Jesus? That's what it says in the ESV. He actually rebuked Jesus. Now, mind you, if I knew of a guy who was casting out demons, teaching things that just made perfect sense out of the scriptures, who's feeding 5,000, who I call teacher, I'm not going to walk up to him and be like, you're wrong. What are you saying? I'm not going to rebuke that guy. But here's what Peter does, and I love that about Peter. He speaks his mind. He's saying, there's no way. The Messiah is not supposed to suffer. He's not supposed to die. And so in this setting, Jesus then goes on to say, to talk about the truth of how, no, 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 let me show you. Out of Zechariah, out of Daniel, let me tell you that the Son of Man is called to suffer, is called to die. But not only that, he also talks to his disciples and says, whoever would come after me in order to save his life will lose it. And he creates this kind of pathway uh, to glory, a pathway to righteousness that says, no, no, the way to glory, the way to righteousness is to suffer and to die to gain it. There seems to be a way to happen, a way to glory is to suffer leads to glory. And then right after that comes the story of the transfiguration that we just read. Jesus leads his disciple up a high mountain. And if you have it on, on the scripture here, or maybe we don't have it on the scripture there, we'll put it on the scripture there in a second. Um, and we'll go through it as we look into the verses here. If you, this is in Mark chapter 9, verse 3, or verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, so the three of those, that little inner circle crew, and they go up to a high mountain by themselves. We don't know what mountain it was, but it was a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them. Now, this is an allusion to Exodus chapter 24. Do you guys know what happened in Exodus chapter 24? Anybody? What happens? Who, who's the book? Who's like the main hero of the book of Exodus? Moses is correct. In Moses, Exodus chapter 24, Moses goes up to the mountain also and meets with the Shekinah presence, glory of God. And so he goes up to the mountain and the, this, the cloud is covered and speaks to Moses. And now God is now speaking to the new and greater Moses. So here's Jesus. He goes up into the mountain and all of a sudden he's transfigured before them. His clothes become radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. This transfigured is a divine passive, and it's a verb that means that God changed his form by allowing his pre-incarnate glory to shine through his human visage. This is from a commentator. And this, the whole the text and the, the form of this verb here is literally uh, allowing this idea that it's his, it's his own glory that's shining through. There's a big difference between this and what happened to Moses. See, when Moses met with God on the mountain, what happened to his face? Anybody remember this? Little Bible trivia questions. It was glowing. It was radiant. It was shining. But his face, that came, the, the way that the tense and the language, it was more of a, a reflection glory. It shined not from an inner source, but more of a reflection, kind of like the moon, Right? But in this, the text here literally says that this kind of the, the metamorpho, that the, the word that's used here, is kind of this idea of not reflecting but producing. And what's now covering, the visage that was covering, is taken away and stripped down. And his own light is shining through. 
See, what happens at the transfiguration isn't that Jesus all of a sudden changed into something else. What happened at the transfiguration was that the human visage that was covering the glory of Jesus, the light that was Jesus, that made us too unbearable for us to see, was, was stripped away and his true nature was seen. Do you see the difference there? Even so much so that his clothes was transformed. Now, a Jewish person would have caught this allusion to Moses' face, the radiance of Moses' face, and the transfiguration of Jesus. They also would have caught this connotation to the clothing of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, where the Ancient of Days were wearing white, whiter than anything that could ever become on earth. This whole passage, this whole transfiguration is acknowledging, it's trying to show that the Ancient of Days, the Suffering One, the Radiance of Moses, the Presence, was all coming together in one, in this in Jesus. And you'll see that even more so as we look to the next verse. It says, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So here's Jesus, once again, really crazy. The disciples, are the, the three disciples are there. They're hanging out on top of a mountain. All of a sudden, Jesus is like shining, like whoo. That's the sound I hear. I don't know if you guys hear that sound. I feel like that was pretty good. Tap that. Gina makes fun of me because I'm really terrible at like doing sound effects or like impersonation. I can only do one semi-decent impersonation of anything, and that's Yoda. That's it. That's all I can do. But I tried to air Neville one once, and she made fun of me so much. Either way. What happened was this, this light and Jesus is just bursting forth. His, his, his divine nature could not be contained any longer in his human shell, and it was bursting out, and this light was shining. His clothes were white, all allusions to what happened to Moses and what happened with the Ancient of Days, saying Jesus is the divine one. He's the source of the radiance, not a reflection of the radiance. And then next to him comes Moses and Elijah, and they're talking to him. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, because some of you guys might be like, oh, who's the heroes of, the, of your faith, or who are, the, who are the people in the Bible that you think are awesome? And I'm, I'm, my answer is always David. David's like my guy. I love David. You know, he's like the warrior, poet, king, shepherd, low to high story. The, the, he's also a warrior, so it kind of like sings in my heart. So David's always been like my hero of the faith. But the heroes of the faith, honestly, to the people here, were people like Abraham, Moses, Elijah. As a matter of fact, if you had to ask people, who are the two greatest heroes of the Old Testament? The Jewish people would, would say Moses and Elijah. Because specifically, they represented two different times. Moses, because he wrote the first five books of the Bible, known as the Law or the Pentateuch. He wrote it, and he kind of represents then the beginning, the kind of the basis of their faith, the understanding. He represents the Law. But the greatest of all the prophets was Elijah. He was, I don't know if you guys know this, but how did Elijah die? Anybody? Wait, 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 say again? Ah, there it is. He didn't die. That was a trick question. Boom. Good job, guys. I mean, see what happened is these are heroes. Elijah was, was seen as a hero. Moses was seen as a hero of the faith. But not only that, Moses represented the first five books of the Bible, the, the law. And then here's Elijah representing the hero. He was the greatest of all the prophets. So he represents all the prophets. And having both of them sitting there talking to Jesus, basically saying these are the heroes of the faith and they're talking to the divine one. They're talking to the one who was shining with radiant. They did, the, the scripture does not say... It does not say that Elijah or Moses was shining or radiant, does it? It doesn't say what they were wearing. I don't know what they were wearing. They could have been wearing like normal robes. I imagine just normal robes. 
but it doesn't say that their robes were bleached whiter than anything that could ever happen on earth. You see? They're talking with Jesus. But it's showing that Jesus is divine, they're not. So it's showing that Jesus is greater than even the greatest heroes of their faith. And it goes further. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. Basically, this is a picture showing that Jesus is the fulfillment. He's what all the law points to. And he's also what all the prophets point to. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets. Guys, there are people out there who believe, oh, the law is wiped away. Law never really counted. It was just for those people before Jesus. That is not true. Hear me very well. Jesus didn't say, oh, law, forget you. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He didn't say, oh, prophets, all the stuff that you said about judgment and all that kind of stuff, ah, forget you, I'm here now. No, no, he came to fulfill the prophets. All the law, all the prophets, the whole Old Testament points to, looks towards the coming of Jesus. He fulfills it all. He's the perfect embodiment of the law. He's the perfect embodiment of prophecy come true. He's righteousness and justice and grace and mercy. It all points to Jesus. Guys, this is why we always preach out of the Old Testament. This is not a church where you, we, you know, a lot of, some people like uh, only preach out of the New Testament. It's kind of easier at times, and sometimes it is easier to preach out of. But we believe that the Old Testament is so powerful and true because we believe it is one story, one meta narrative that points to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the law, he's the fulfillment of the prophets. Jesus' kingdom that he's preaching isn't something brand new that he just made up. It's not something like, oh, I'm going to come around and say, preach a new message of love and a new kingdom and nobody's ever heard of this. No, this is what it always has been about. From the beginning, he was the promised one that's going to stop on the head of the serpent. He was enmity between man and the serpent. He was the promised one, the promised Messiah, the promised one of the fulfilling of the kingdom. This kingdom isn't brand new. It wasn't something that Jesus and his disciples made up. It was one that was always talked about, that was always pointing towards. It was the hope that the Jewish people always had. Do you hear that? And it's the hope that we have today. That we're not preaching a brand new kingdom. We're preaching the kingdom of Jesus. That was always the plan. He's a fulfillment of the law and of the prophets. Verse 5, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Once again, good old Peter, love it. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. He just blurred stuff out. <laughs> and I love it. Mind you, by the way, I'll throw this out there. Do you guys know Mark is the one who wrote the book, but do you guys know that who Mark was, some people believe, was kind of like, um, the mouthpiece for, the, the writer for, like who his kind of like inspiration for all his writing was from, like the relationship. Anybody? Peter. Peter. I love it because Mark's like making Peter not look so good here. <laughs> but Peter's just like, yeah, this is, this is me. Just tells it like it is. This is this, he just th- says, says what he's thinking. And in Matthew, actually, it actually says the specific time that it was more like later at night and they could have been asleep. So all of a sudden, like, the three guys, um, Peter, John, and, and they're just hanging out, and all of a sudden they're, like, woken up, and they see Jesus transfigured, and they're like, what in the world? You know, he's glowing, he, there's, there's white robes on, there's Elijah, and there's Moses, and they're just freaked out. And so most people who are freaked out like that would just been, like, kind of, like, quivering, kind of like, I don't know what to say, um, awesome, okay, cool. But then Peter's like, oh, okay, okay, I gotta say something. 
He can't just sit still. He can't sit in that moment. He, he can't just enjoy. He's like, I got to say something, right? No? Do I, are you going to say something, John? No? Okay. Okay, I got this. And he says, okay, Rabbi, Jesus, in the middle of this, I think it's good that um, yeah, we make three tents. One for you, Moses, and for Elijah. Now, some of you guys might be thinking, like, does he mean, like, so they can sleep? Like, a shelter? Which, yes, in some ways. But actually, what, uh, what Peter's trying to do is try to tie this occasion with um, something called a Jewish holiday called the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would actually make shelters, you know, as, as, as a celebration of this feast. So he'd actually try to say, this is awesome. This is incredible. Let me tie this, because this is the feast that's about to happen right now. This is, let's celebrate this. Let's honor the three of you. And this feast actually, what's awesome about it is it looks back to the, the deliverance of Exodus and it also looks to the coming of the day of the Lord. So it's actually a fitting feast, but in Peter's rashness, he misses it. He made the mistake of trying to make Jesus equal with Moses and Elijah, the greatest of heroes. See, in his rashness, in his kind of like, uh, uh, what do I do? Say something. Um, and I don't know what you would have said. Maybe if it was you, I would have been like, uh, awesome, or thank God, or just kind of not say anything. But Peter was like, can I say something? Oh, let's honor the three of you. All three of you as equals. Let's honor the three of you. Which maybe in Peter's mind, he's thinking, that's incredible praise for Jesus. Right? In Peter's mind, these are the greatest heroes of his faith. This is Moses. This is, this is Elijah. So in Peter's mind, he's like, Jesus, you're the same level as them. I'm going to honor you. But God corrects this in verse 7. And it says here, the cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is the Shekinah cloud. This is the presence of God among his people. Went before the people in his wilderness. Guys, I want you to get this, that in the wilderness, when God's presence was there, he, he came and dwelt in a, in a, in a cloud. Now, I don't know how big this cloud was. It could be like a mist. It could be like a fog. But basically, it's a dark cloud that symbolizes this is the very presence of God because we could not actually see the face of God because the glory was too much. So he kind of presented himself in this Shekinah glory cloud among his people. This is the cloud that led the people in the wilderness. This is the cloud that signified God's presence in the mountain. This is the cloud that filled the tabernacle. This was the very presence of God on this earth. And this voice spoke out, very much like at Jesus' baptism. It's affirming and confirming Jesus' identity. It's like a royal pronouncement. You know, here you have Elijah and Moses, and they're like the heralds. They're like, What's, I'm doing a lot of sound effects today. But they're like um, heralding and saying, come, gather the people, listen. You know, they're saying, here they're, we're the heralds, we're announcing, there's an announcement coming. Right? They're the witnesses. Here, here are the disciples who are witnessing this amazing event, this coronation ceremony. And then comes the very king himself. You know, very much with his, the way I picture it. It's almost like a king grabbing his sword and placing it upon his son and knighting him or saying, you're now the next king. It's like the oil being poured upon David and saying, you're the, now the new king of Israel. This is the very presence of God saying and bestowing with his words, with his presence, saying, this is the king. This is my son. He is not equal to Moses and Elijah. He is divine. His radiance shines forth from who he is, not as a reflection of who I am, because he is one and the same. He is God incarnate. 
This is the royal pronouncement. This is the identity of my son. The transfiguration shows us the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Because here's the deal. This is what's so incredible. That we see in this picture this beautiful pronouncement. But what leads to, what led to this pronouncement before is that Jesus proclaiming that it's through suffering. That the Son of Man is called to suffer. The disciples didn't get it. Peter rebuked Jesus for it. But Jesus was, a patient, was patient and shown his glory. Guys, I want you to understand something. That the glory of Jesus that what's incredible about who Jesus is is that he is the conquering God incarnate king who conquered through suffering and dying himself. I don't want you to miss that. That's the, like the main, in my mind, the beautiful fullness to this picture of the transfiguration. Yes, you look at the transfiguration and you see Jesus' glory, his majesty. He is not equal to Moses and Elijah. He is greater. He shines forth with his own radiance. But I want you to understand this. He shines forth with his own radiance because he was willing to suffer and to die. Revelation 5 talks about he was worthy. They looked around and said, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to open the scroll? And they could not find anybody worthy except they said, oh, but the line from the tribe of Judah, he's worthy. Because by his death, he ransomed people for God. Why was he worthy? Because he was worthy because he was also the lamb who was slain. The Lion of Judah was worthy because he was also the one who became the Lamb who was slain, the one who died, the one who suffered. He was worthy to open the scroll. Guys, I want you to understand that this beautiful picture of Jesus' glory is even more manifest because we also see right with it a beautiful picture of his suffering. Don't miss who Jesus is. Yes, he's glorious. Yes, he's worthy. Yes, he shines with radiance that outshines any sun. But he also chose to become lowly, to become man, to suffer, and to die. Today, we celebrate communion. And in our celebrating of communion, what we celebrate what we acknowledge and what we proclaim and what we profess is that for some reason in the fullness of time and the divine plan of this incredible God he decided to show his glory most effectively through suffering and through dying and he laid down glory he laid down everything so that we can be willing partakers we can be fellow uh, sons and daughters with him. Guys, I want you to understand something. When we come before, and this is a reminder, guys, um, I said earlier that the cost of community, uh, the, uh, what's it called again? The cost of the presence of meeting with God like Warren Buffett was priceless. Well, the cost for us was priceless before meeting with our God. Is it cost, and it took the blood of Jesus. And I don't know if you guys know this. We say the word blood like in the Christian circles, kind of like in Christian subculture language all the time. Like, oh, the blood of Jesus forgives sins, or the, the blood of Jesus covers it all. And it, it almost becomes something like blah, like, not blah, but like something light. Not a big deal. You know, my son, um, like a week and a half ago, slipped on the front step outside of my house. And I have these stone steps. And he slipped and he hit his head on the stone and he had a gash, like huge gash on his forehead. I was inside the house. I didn't see it happen. 
And all I hear crying. So I run into the house, and here comes Megan holding Josiah. And I look, and all I see is this huge gash, but I see blood just coming down his face. I, let me tell you, there's nothing like, I don't know, like fear or uh, that combination of adrenaline, fear, emotion, whatever that comes to you when you see your son's blood just covering his face. You know, I, I don't know if I can take blood lightly again when I think of that because I think of just that little, little gash and the blood, and the, the emotions that brought to me. Let me tell you the, the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us. That saves us. And I, we use that word save all the time again, so lightly. But what, literally what it does, what that blood of Jesus does, it, it literally says, hey, I'm going to pay all the price of all the penalties of all your sin. Everything that we deserve, he covers up and pays fullness price to. He pays for the dinner with Warren Buffett. He pays for our access to God. He pays for us to be in relationship. But not only that, he pays for us to be full co-heirs alongside him. He pays for us to be adopted children. He pays the infinite cost so that we can know that before a righteous, holy God, we're called clean. We're called beautiful. We're called beloved children. It's in communion as we come together, as we celebrate, say that blood was costly. And we thank you, Jesus, for it. And we partake in communion. We, we invite you to, to examine our own hearts. And here's the thing. And there's a lot of churches who talk about communion and have this idea of examining our own hearts and be like, take communion in a worthy manner. And I understand that. But can I tell you, none of us are worthy of communion. Really? Right? No matter how good or how hard you try, whether you studied your Bible this morning or prayed for five hours, none of us are worthy of communion. The only thing that makes us worthy of communion and we can approach communion confidently is that we know that Jesus paid the price for us to have this access to God. This means of grace, that what communion is, is literally it's this time of us celebrating, communing with our God, our Father, that what made us, allowed us to do this is the, the work of Jesus so when we come to communion together, we invite you to come knowing that only through Jesus are we worthy. And he's given you freely this gift to commune with the Father. So I invite the elders to come forward to help us serve communion. As they come forward, thank you. We here at Waypoint Church, we practice communion by a process called intinction. And what it is, is we ask you to come down the center aisle when you feel ready, and we'll break a piece of bread and hand it to you, and then you take it and you dip it into the cup, and you partake in communion. And we profess that the partaking of communion is not something that we take, and as, it's, not a, it's, it's not something that we take lightly just because, oh, anybody can take it, but we take holy because we know it's a means of grace. We know that it's a gift of God. Us to take it. We invite all of you who know Jesus to be welcome to come and take this great gift. For those of you who don't and do not wish to take it, there is no judgment here. We want you to know that we wish and pray that you come to know who Jesus is. But for those of you who are, are, are desiring to partake in communion with us, we know that we take only through the grace and mercy of Jesus. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great gift. 
God, that you show us in the transfiguration that you are divine and you are glorious, but you also showed us in the transfiguration that the divine and glorious one suffered and died. So God, thank you for being the one who is worthy of the scroll because you were also the lion who was the lamb, who was slain for us. So as we partake in communion, may we understand the cost. May we understand the great gift, the great grace you've given us. May we know you more in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which was broken for you. This is his body that was broken so that we can be in communion with God. And he took the cup, and as he poured it out to his disciples, he said, this is my blood which was shed, the blood that was priceless, shed for us. We invite you, as you feel led, and if you feel ready, to partake in communion. You can come down the center aisle. There is a gluten-free station at the end. And as you feel led, we invite you to come and receive communion.